I woke up on Saturday morning, I looked at the Google Analytics and saw something like 500 or 600 simultaneous visitors to our website. Most employees would rather have the boss who at least tells them where they stand than the one who doesn't. You're listening to The Growth Show, a podcast that uncovers interesting stories and advice on growth from every corner of the business world. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of The Growth Show. I'm Kit Bodner, your host for today's episode and the CMO here at HubSpot. In today's episode, I'm joined by Charles Duhay. Charles is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and the author of the brand new book, Smarter, Faster, Better. In this book, Charles looks at how we can all be more productive as individuals and as teams. He has fascinating stories from Google, Disney, and leaders around the world. Let's dive in, hear from Charles, and learn how we all can lead more productive teams and lives. Before we talk about the new book, I'd love to talk a little bit about how you kind of got into this situation in the first place. Like, how did you become a reporter, a storyteller, an author? Like, where'd that start? So I was, um, I, I, I was an entrepreneur, and I, after I graduated from college, I moved back to New Mexico where I was growing up mm-hmm. um, to start a company, and the company built medical education campuses, and. I thought that was really interesting, and setting up the company was fun, and I decided to go to, to business school, and so I went to, to Harvard to get my MBA. And uh, for anyone who's listening who's been in business school, you know that between your first and your second year, you do this summer, right? Mm-hmm. And in the summer, you, are, you work at a place that you're hoping will hire you. So being a like young, ambitious business school student, I decided to work in private equity because <laughs> everyone I was surrounded by kept on talking about private equity, which clearly like private equity must be the coolest thing on earth. I had no idea what private equity actually was, but I got a job in private equity for the summer between first and second year. And I quickly learned that what it was is it was building like computer models right mm-hmm. on Excel. Yep. And so I would come in every single day and I would sit down and I would start to build my models for the day to try and figure out which company or property we should buy. And I, it was like so intensely boring that I started listening to This American Life. And I had this rule that I was only allowed to listen to two This American Lives per day. Because this is, this was about, you know, thir- this was 13 years ago, 14 years ago. So there weren't that many This American Lives. Sure. And I didn't want to blow through all of them like in two weeks. And so, and so some days, if like I was just really feeling down, I'd be like, okay, I can listen to a third This American Life. Well, I'm getting restrained binge listening. Yes, here. exactly. <laughs> and I would like I would like meet them out. And at the end of the summer, I realized like <laughs> if the best part of your day is listening <laughs> to stories being told on the radio while you're at your job, and like this is supposed to be the job that like you're excited about because it's the one that you're like trying to get after you graduate, that indicates this is a terrible job for me. Like I should not do this job. And so it was during that summer that I decided to become a journalist. And, and the reason why was basically that, I, I mean, I've sort of thought about productivity and systems my whole life. And the way you get really good at something like private equity is you seek out and you do these same kinds of deals over and over and over again. You get faster and faster at them. You get better at them. You make more and more money because they're bigger and bigger deals. But it's the, still the same fundamental problem over and over and, and 
it just gets boring for some people, right? It, I, it would for me. For a lot of people, they find it re- exhilarating and so and exciting and interesting. But for me, doing the same thing over and over and over again just seemed boring. And the thing about being a journalist is you, by definition, do something different every single day. Like my, my whole job is to learn and then to try and figure out how to explain what I've learned to other people. And that seemed like a problem I could grapple with for the rest of my life. So I became a journalist. Nothing like private equity to turn you into a journalist. <laughs> it's <right>? true. It's <laughs> true. <laughs> it was not the most financially savvy choice an MBA would make. I was. I think I was the lowest earning member of my class for like the seven years after we graduated. I actually, <laughs> right after we graduated from Harvard, I uh, business school. I I got I got an internship at the Washington Post, and I lived in my in laws' basement while I was doing that. And I remember one day thinking like. This is literally the worst choice I've ever made in my entire <laughs> life. But it all it all came around. When when did it come around? Like when 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 did you think that it was the best choice that you ever made? Like pretty soon after that actually. So so I um I, I was I did an internship with the Washington Post and then I got hired by the Los Angeles Times and and one of the reasons I got hired and I was really excited is I wanted to go to Iraq. Like I wanted mm-hmm. to be a, be a war correspondent. Um, and so I got to Iraq and I realized two things. Number one, like this was a decision I was completely unprepared for. Like I literally got off the plane in Baghdad and it was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. But number two, like this is really interesting. Like a war zone is a terrible, terrible place, Mm. but it is a fascinating place. And it was at that point that I thought like, yeah, I think this could work out for me. This is pretty, this is pretty interesting. What did your time in Iraq uh, how did it prepare you for the books that you would write, your your study on productivity and habits and those things? So, so the habit, so the power of habit actually started in Iraq because of this major I met. Um, that being said, to be honest, uh, there's almost nothing useful you learn in a war zone. To, to be totally, to be totally genuine with you, like mm-hmm. there's this like kind of um, cultural bias about war zones being this thing where you learn all about yourself. And and that is true. I did learn like one or two things that were that I wouldn't have been able to learn any other way. Like I learned that that and this is just kind of random that that I like I wasn't scared to be killed at that point. Um, and I saw other people who were, and and it it turns out that that's just like it's like having blue eyes or brown eyes. I mean, it's not something that like says anything about your character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned a couple of things about sort of just how awful war is, like what war can do to people. But in general. In my experience, war zones are not places where you like actually like learn these big life lessons. All you learn is war is so much worse than you could possibly imagine it would be. Um, but I did meet the army major who sort of introduced me to this concept that that the military is this giant habit change machine, and 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 that was something useful I carried away from being in in Iraq. Um, and so when I came back, I started researching that idea and was so relieved not to have to do it in a war zone anymore because <laughs> it was so much better to be back in the United States. Yeah, I can't imagine the perspective and attitude change and everything that comes from coming back from an environment like that. Yeah, I mean, the, the hardest part about it is that, and again, like I, I can only speak to my own experience and I feel you know, ill-equipped to do so because there's so many people particularly veterans who had different experiences that were in some ways better and in some ways worse. Um, The thing about being in a war zone is that it's so effortlessly exhilarating. Like you, you never ever feel 
unalive when you are in a place where people are killing each other. And that's actually a terrible, terrible thing because, because when you get back, you, it takes a little while to get used to living, living what is a much, much better life, like an objectively much better life, but that feels less intense, um, very often. That's fascinating. So we're here, we're here talking your, your new book just came out. So smarter, faster, better. It's kind of your follow up to, to your first book, The Power of Habit. In that book, first of all, let's give people a little overview of, of why you wrote the book, what the book's about. Absolutely. So I wrote the book because um, I was having this kind of problem, which was that, it, so, so things were going really well at the New York Times. I was working on this big series about Apple and about um, conditions and factories that made iPads that ended up winning the, the Pulitzer Prize. And, and I had this first book, The Power of Habit, about the psychology of habit formation that was doing really, really well. And the thing is that, like, I was just, like, despite the fact that I was successful, I was working so hard. And no matter how hard I worked, in fact, the harder I worked, the more and more I fell behind every single day. Like, it just seemed like there were more emails to deal with. And there was more stress. And, like, I'd see my kids less and less and less. And, like, I was thinking to myself, like, if this is what success is like, like, this is terrible. Why <laughs> Why was I chasing after this? And what I realized is that the biggest issue was just this issue of productivity. And, and the way that it really crystallized for me is that I, I reached out to this other author to ask his advice. Um, and, and he said he didn't have time to talk to me right then. And I thought it was because he's, you know, a, this guy writes for the New Yorker. He writes best-selling books. He's a surgeon at Harvard. He works with the World Health Organization. I figured he was just like, much like me, just totally overwhelmed mm-hmm. by, by life. And, and then I talked to a friend in common, and he was like, oh, no, no, the reason he didn't have any time to talk to you was because he was taking his kids to a concert that night, and he's going this weekend on a vacation with his wife. <laughs> and when I heard that, I thought, what am I doing wrong? Like, this guy, this guy gets more done every day than I do, and yet he has time to, like, hang out with his kids and his wife, and, like... Every time I see him on the on TV or hear him on the radio, he sounds so relaxed, and <laughs> and he is actually relaxed. Like, He's like this really nice guy. guy, and so I thought like there are clearly people who have figured out some secret that I don't understand. Right? They're yeah. doing something fundamentally different. And when I started talking to a, particularly economists about this, they would say the same thing. They would say, "What's fascinating to us is that if you look across industries, there are some companies that are incredibly more productive." than their their peers. It, they're doing they're in the same business, but they like make twice as much stuff. They have four times as many profits. Or if you look at software programmers, there's these programmers who are like 10 times more productive than their colleagues. And it's not that they work 10 times more hours. They actually no. sometimes work less hours. It's that the, there are these people and these executives who know how to think differently. And this is what I found out is that is that the really genuinely productive people, they govern their own minds in a way that most of us don't. They, they see these choices that most of us don't even realize are there. And because they understand how their brains work and they can control their, how they think a little bit better, they're just much, much more effective at choosing the right goals, at focusing, at self-motivating. They get more done with less stress and waste. What are those choices? You know, you're saying they're seeing those choices. What what are the what are examples? So of so those there's types basically there's basically these eight things that that all the research seems to indicate the most productive people do better than everyone else. 
Um, and, and there are things like um, the most productive people tend to self-motivate in a very specific way. They they look for for opportunities to kind of assert themselves, what's known in psychology as a bias towards action, because it makes it much easier to kind of get your brain to jump into motivation phase very quickly. They they very actively manage their focus by building mental models or or envisioning what they expect to see, what they expect to have happen. Because when your brain has, particularly your subconscious, when it has some narrative mm -hmm. that it can apply to a situation, it's much more attuned to noticing the important discrepancies and ignoring the distractions. It, the most productive teams tend to function differently. And we just had a piece in the New York Times Magazine about this. Yeah, I want that, to talk to you about that. Yeah, that, that Google did this big experiment. The most productive teams, they, they almost look counterintuitive to how you think a productive team should work. Um, productive people tend to innovate differently. They, they focus much more on the creative process rather than like, you know, trying to touch their inner muse and elicit some moment of genius. And, and again... It's not like this is like a formula that if you follow, yeah. you become more productive. But undergirding it is this basic idea that people who are more reflective, people who understand how their thoughts function and therefore are in a position to shape their thoughts, to shape their mind and govern it, those are people who tend to make better choices and decisions. They tend to choose better goals and they tend to end up being more productive. That's fascinating. You talked, so I want to talk a little bit about the teams. Uh, you just had an article about Google and how they've done a ton of research around teams. It's probably one of the most read uh, uh, articles around the halls of HubSpot in, oh, good. in recent years. Good. The entire management team read it. I think everybody who leads ma or manages people has read has read that article. And so, what I want to do is, could you share a little bit with the listener, listeners about what did you learn? What was the big aha moment from talking with the folks at Google? So. Um, about five years ago, Google started this project called um, that they gave a cool code name to Project Aristotle because awesome name. Yeah, it's an awesome name. Someone <laughs> told me that the cooler your code name in Google, the easier it is to get funding. That's so they came true. up with Project Aristotle. <laughs> Turns out there were actually like three other Project Aristotles at the exact same time. So they ended up changing the name after a little while. But for years, it was Project Aristotle. And and the idea behind it was, you know, Google collects data on its employees almost obsessively. And they had spent a lot of time thinking about how individuals can become more productive and effective. But then they realized that like, what they really needed to understand were teams because most of us spend most of our time on teams. So they came up with this basic question, can we build the perfect team? And what they did to answer that was they ended up spending four years and millions and millions of dollars analyzing which teams were effective and why. And their initial hypothesis was, the right building the right team is all about getting the right people together, right? Like, um, maybe you yeah. need like a mix of extroverts and introverts, or maybe you need people who are friends away from the conference table, or maybe you need people who are kind of strangers because that way, like, they won't let the bonds of friendship interfere with making good decisions, or maybe you need like a strong leader, or maybe you need like a flat structure. They didn't know exactly what the answer was, but but they figured that one of those they could find best practices. So they look at team after team, they ask. Everyone is on the team, all these questions. They correlated against data of who's beating profits and you know who's most effective. And they can't find any patterns at all. Like literally there's nothing that indicates that who is on a team influences whether that team will succeed or not. In fact, all that they found is that how a team functions <laughs> matters and that who is on it seems not to have any impact at all. 
Which then becomes this question of like, okay, so how should a team function? What are known as group norms, these behaviors. And what they found is that there's two behaviors in particular that are critical for a team to come together. The first is this thing known as equality in conversational turn-taking, which basically means that everyone at the meeting, everyone on the team, they all feel like they can they can speak up. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, not every day or every meeting, but say over a month or over two months, that people generally speak in roughly equal increments. There's no one dominating the conversation. Yeah, so just kind of even distribution across the board. Yeah, but yeah. but not not perfectly even, no, right? No. Because there's some people no. who like love to hear the sound of their own voice, and there's some <laughs> people who like are very, very concise. But the point being that like everyone kind of gets airtime when they want it. Sure. The second thing that a team must have to become effective as a, be- a group norm, a behavior, is that they must have what's, n- what's known as high social sensitivity, which means that if you're pissed off, I can kind of pick up on that without you having to tell me you're pissed off, right? So maybe I say like, <laughs> Jim, I notice that your arms are crossed and you, you look like you're not really happy about what's going on. Can you tell me about that? Or, or Susan, you look really excited about this idea. Mm-hmm. Do you want to take lead on it? People who can pick up on what each other is thinking, that it means that they're really listening to each other, right? Yeah. The thing is that if you have these two things, equality and conversational turn-taking, where people can speak up, and, and social sensitivity, when they come together, they essentially create this thing that psychologists call psychological safety. If you're on a team that has psychological safety, it means everyone feels like they're free to be themselves. They can mm-hmm. say what they need to say without fear of recrimination. And the reason why this is critical is because that is the missing ingredient that makes a team effective. But what's interesting about this is that if you were to look at teams with psychological safety from the outside, if you just saw like a five-minute you know, clip of the super meeting, dysfunctional. <laughs> they wouldn't look dysfunctional, but they wouldn't necessarily look efficient. Yeah. Right? So, so think about how you create um, psychological safety, how you learn to pick up on each other's nonverbal cues. The way you do that is you start a meeting by like, just kind of like gossiping, right? Mm-hmm. Or asking people what they did that weekend or, or asking people how they feel. Or think about this, this equality of conversational turn-taking. If you watch that as an outsider, what you would see is like someone who's an expert on a topic would talk about a topic and then someone else who's not an expert, they would talk on that topic too, right? And you might think like, why is that second guy <laughs> saying stuff? Like, why not just keep yeah. your mouth shut? But it turns out that these things that in the short term look a little bit inefficient, over the long term, they add up to teams that actually come together, teams that become greater than the sum of its parts. And that is critical in making a team function. So the people listening, there are a bunch of people out there listening to this right now, and they're, they have their own teams. And they're like, oh, this, this sounds awesome. I, I want my team to be like this, but how do I have these two things happen with my team? Like, how do you foster that? How, do, how, how does you get that it to happen? Work? Yeah. Right. So, so, the, so there's been a lot of research into this, in part by Google. And what they found is that what's critical is that team, a team leader, whether that be the formal leader, like the person mm-hmm. who runs the team, or just whoever happens to be like a big personality on the team, yeah. they have to model those behaviors mm. ostentatiously. So what that means is that, for instance, if you're leading a meeting and only half the people at the table have spoken up, you should say, hey, Cindy, I haven't heard you say anything. Do you mind telling us what you're thinking about? Yeah. 
right? Or, or if you see someone who looks like they're kind of like not into what we're talking about or they're pissed off or it just seems like they're distracted, to stop everything as a leader and say, hey, um, you know, Jim, like you look a little bit distracted. Like tell me what's going on. Like, like are you everything okay at home, right? Are, are you worried about anything? When leaders ostentatiously demonstrate those behaviors, the rest of the team starts mimicking them almost unconsciously. We know this, right? We know this from meetings we've been in, that when one person does something, other people will start mirroring that behavior. Now, what's interesting is Google has actually come up with this huge checklist for for team leaders to tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff is really simple, like when you start the meeting, close your computer so you can make eye contact (laughs) with with everyone else. And when you think about it, that seems like a ridiculous thing to have to tell a manager to do. But how many times, no, it's not at all. How many times have we gone into a meeting (laughs) and opened up our computer and like started taking notes on our computer, right? Or we're checking our email out of a corner of our eye because there's all this stuff going on. So just being reminded like these small things matter. Or another rule that Google gives its leaders are if you are a team leader, don't interrupt other people. Because once you interrupt someone, everyone else will think it's okay to start interrupting. Now you can cross talk, you can yeah. you can chat with each other, you can dialogue, but don't cut someone off. And it turns out that if you don't do that, no one else on the team will do it either. It's fascinating, and it's it's always the things that sound simple that are that are hard to do, right? But That's exactly I right. Think for for folks listening, very actionable things that they can go back and take, regardless of the size of the team or what the team's trying to accomplish, which is, in some ways, really great. You know, it's, yeah. the broad applicability is awesome. So in, in the book, you talk to a whole host of companies and, and people kind of across the board. One thing I'd love to know is, I know they were all great, but was there any person or company that just really stood out that was like the uber exemplification of the idea of smarter, faster, better? You know, I ha- actually Disney. Disney. Tell us about them. Disney is an amazing company. So, so in the book, we tell the story of um, the making of Frozen, and all <laughs> of us are familiar with Frozen, right? If you have oh, any yes. kids, you've heard like "Let It Go" a thousand times. <laughs> so we know Frozen is this hit movie. What's fascinating is that Frozen was essentially on the brink of catastrophe until weeks before it was done and appeared in theaters. Most animated films at Disney, they have five years to be made. Frozen had two because another movie fell through. And so they had to rush the production. And they didn't actually even know how the movie ended until (laughs) until literally days before they had to start sending the the, the film out to theaters so they could start loading (laughs) it and processing it. And the thing about Disney, though, is that Disney has this basic belief, which is it does not matter how creative people are. What matters is how creative the process is. That there's no such thing as a creative or uncreative person. There is a process that is designed to make innovation more productive. And if you buy into that process and you commit to it, you will get something good that comes out the other end. And what the process says is essentially two things. It says, first of all, instead of trying to come up with something completely new, rely on what you already know. Okay. Right? And and in the case of Disney and Frozen... The filmmakers who are like all freaking out and trying to figure out how to put this movie together in like record time, they, they sat down and they and they were in the process said, tell me what you already know. And they said, look, what we know is this. Number one, we know princesses, right? Disney knows princesses. We've got 70 years of institutional knowledge on how princesses work. <laughs> it's true. And number two, 
We Know Sisters, because it turns out that there was an unusually large number of women working on Frozen. In fact, Mm -hmm. the first female director in Disney's history was the Frozen Mm co-director. And so the team sat down and they said, okay, we know princesses and we know sisters. The process tells us that what we should do is take what we know and instead of trying to create something brand new, just try and jam those ideas together in a new way. So what if instead of using a traditional princess story where the prince comes in and he rescues the princess who's in distress, what if instead the princesses saved each other? And what if they were sisters? What if there was this like tension between them and they're both princesses and they end up saving each other in the end? And in fact, if we did that, the prince could actually be the bad guy. And maybe we don't even reveal he's the bad guy till the end of the movie. And that's Frozen, <laughs> yeah, right? And absolutely. like when you, when any of us have seen Frozen, it seems like this incredibly innovative, you're like, wow, this is so clever and creative <laughs> and like I never saw this coming. But like it's not that, it's not yeah. rocket science. But the reason why that happened is because Disney says we have a process. Now here's the other thing that Disney says. Disney says, if you are feeling a lot of tension and anxiety, that is good. Because tension that's and anxiety... Totally means that you're getting closer and closer to the right answer. Mm-hmm. If you feel relaxed, that means that you're not challenging. You're not finding anything new. And most of our instincts is that when we feel anxious and we feel tense to think that like we're doing something wrong. Yeah, but it's human what, nature. Exactly. Right. But what Disney says is, that's a symptom of success. So you should lean into that tension. Be okay with that ambiguity and that anxiety because something good is going to come out the other end. That's... Really fascinating that of all of the folks you talked to, they stood out because it's how they've been able to endure over such a long period of time is just it's amazing. incredible. It's, it's really, amazing. really incredible. So now that you've written this book and you have some authority and knowledge on productivity, what's the worst, what's the piece of advice, like that's the bad piece of productivity advice that you hear people spout about in the world that you just, just now drives you nuts? So, so I think there's two of them. The, okay. the, the first one is... Um, that the key to productivity is working harder, right? Like mm, yeah. the most productive people, they like make these intense sacrifices. They never see their kids. They yeah. like, they have terrible relationships with their spouses. That's totally untrue. It turns out that like the most productive people actually have more time mm-hmm. for their families and for their hobbies. That's why they're so productive is because they have these balanced lives. Yeah. And then the other thing that I think you hear a lot is, well, the most productive people are so productive because they're so smart, right? Or they went to like great schools or or their parents are rich or they're rich yeah. or they work for companies that are doing well and there's all these resources. Again, it turns out that there's almost, in the, in the scientific research, there's almost no correlation with any of those and productivity. That, huh. it, that very often the most productive people um, started as outsiders, and, and that's why they were able to kind of see things with brand new eyes. They, they basically said, look, I can't compete in this race because I didn't go to the right school or my parents aren't rich or I'm not really that bright. And so what I need to do is I need to figure out something that I can do differently. And what they stumble on, and this happens again and again in different ways, is they stumble on this idea that I can make better decisions. Like I, I recognize that there's this opportunity for me to govern how I think, govern my mind in a way that other people don't. And that that ends up yielding these huge dividends. Yeah, it seems like there's... They they have a higher need for leverage and, and, and exponential returns, and it just forces them to diverge from 
the working harder traditional way of thinking. That's about exactly things. right. That's, and and in, in psychology, they refer to those as stretch goals. People who who set these kind of big audacious goals. But it's not just the goal. So so yeah. one of my favorite stories is this, is the story of this guy named Malcolm McLean. Um, Malcolm McLean was a trucker in the 1950s, 1940s and 1950s who when he would go to the docks to drop off his loads it would drive him crazy because it would he it would he would like he would get to you know it would take him 8 hours to do his run get his mm-hmm. his his truck up there and then it would take like 10 hours for the for the dock hands to unload his truck and load up the ship and so McLean said like look, what if I just drove my truck onto the ship and you just took the trailer off mm-hmm. and like just use it? And everybody who was working on ships said, that makes no sense whatsoever. That's <laughs> the worst idea we've ever heard. The way that you get more productive in shipping is you make faster and faster ships. And once you have a fast ship, you got to jam as much stuff into it as you can. Mm-hmm. And McLean said like, that's nuts. <laughs> like it, shipping isn't about fast ships. Shipping is about moving goods quickly. And if they're all waiting at the dock... So Malcolm McLean invented the shipping container. <laughs> and the shipping container has revolutionized everything, industry. right? Yeah. yeah, it's how it's how 93% of goods around the world are moved now. It literally the economies of Vietnam and China, they wouldn't exist except for the shipping container. But what it took is it took someone who basically said, "I'm going to I'm going to force myself to analyze this problem differently. I'm not going to get focused like everyone else on building fast ships. I'm going to get focused on building fast docks." And that sounds simple when we say it, but for 150 years, that same piece of information, that same piece of insight had been there, and all the big shippers had ignored it because they basically had become so focused on the near goal, the immediate goal of building faster and faster boats, that they were unwilling to sort of step back and look at bigger goals and take the seven or eight years that it took McLean to invent shipping containers that actually worked. Yeah, it seems like in hindsight, productivity and great ideas seem so obvious. And maybe that's part of the uh, self-fulfilling prophecy of, of why we don't, don't diverge enough from uh, the traditional way of thinking. But it's, it's fascinating. Well, I think you're right. I think that's exactly it. Is that, and I think the other part of that is that oftentimes productivity and efficiency mm-hmm. diverge, right? What looks to be efficient oftentimes isn't productive. And that's kind of important because... We have become trained to make them synonymous. We've become trained to think of productivity as life hacks, that if I can do something 1% or 2% faster, that that makes me more productive. But that's not – all that does is sometimes make you busier, right? Because it means instead of doing 20 emails a day, you can now do 50 emails a day. But that means the next day you have 70 emails you need to reply to. That's not productivity. Productivity and efficiency sometimes – oftentimes are at odds with each other, and it's recognizing that difference – that makes people much more genuinely productive. Yeah, we call that here at HubSpot dragging out the spreadsheet. Sometimes you just need a new spreadsheet. Sometimes right. dragging out the spreadsheet is is not productive. It Absolutely. Is, it is just reinforcing a, a bad loop of behavior. And sometimes you have to go through that that process, yeah. right? That exercise of of making your spreadsheet into like a mess and saying, I'm going to start over to l- really learn what is important. But once you do... Like you get to leapfrog everyone else. Oh, absolutely, the leverage you get from that is fantastic. So to close out, I have one. I have one final question because now I'm really curious. Now that you've written the book, what is the thing that you want to get smarter, faster, better at? Like, what? How are you going to personally apply? apply well, this? so so actually, like every 
basically I've changed like half of what I do by writing this book. So so the one of my favorite examples is to-do lists. I used to write to-do lists mm-hmm. the same way that I think most people write to-do lists is that like I'd wake up in the morning and I'd jot down all the things I want to get mm-hmm. done that day. And um, at the top, I, at the bottom of the list, I'd put like the hard things, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, start losing 30 pounds <laughs> right. or go jogging to start marathon training. And at the top of the list, I'd put a bunch of easy things. And sometimes I would actually even write down things I had already done so that when I sat down on my desk, I could like cross it off and feel good about myself. It turns out that's exactly the wrong way to write a to-do list. A psychologist referred to that as using a to-do list for mood repair mm-hmm. instead of productivity. So now what I do is I write a to-do list the right way. And this is just an example of kind of how this book is writing this has changed my life. I write at the top of my to-do list a big stretch goal, mm-hmm. right? Like this big ambition. The thing that used to be at the bottom of my list is now at the top. And the reason why that's important is because it reminds you what you actually want to get done, like what the important what thing is. Yeah, what, what you should be focused on. But a big goal can be overwhelming. So underneath it, I write, uh, I break it down into what are known as SMART goals. Mm-hmm. The, the, I write like specifically what I want to do that morning and how I'm going to measure it and what, what I need in place for it to be achievable and what I have to change about my schedule to make that realistic and what the timeline is. Right? They're called SMART goals just because it spells SMART. Right, it's a, yeah. it's like a really, them, we use them here. Do you? Yeah, yeah it's just a really easy way of like, of like forcing yourself to come up with a plan. But the idea is basically the same. You put this big ambition at the top of the page and then you put a very specific plan underneath it it takes like 45 seconds to do this every morning, right? It's yeah. not like a big exercise. And it has revolutionized how much I get done during the day. Because now when I sit down at my desk, I know exactly what I want to do. And when I'm done with the first task, I don't like start patting myself on the back and like go check Facebook for the next 45 <laughs> minutes. Because I'm reminded I've got this stretch goal that I'm like, moving I'm, towards. I, I, I'm working towards this bigger thing. Yeah. Today is just a part of it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But, but the idea underneath that is the the idea that's kind of been transformative for me, which is like, it's not about just getting more stuff done. It's not about working harder. It's about choosing the right goals and being focused on them and, and understanding your own frailties and weaknesses and strengths and structuring your life in a way to take advantage of the strengths and to discourage the frailties that when you govern how you think, when you are really aware of what you do, that it just, it makes it so much easier to get the right things done. Uh, I couldn't think of a better note to end on. Thank you so much for your help and advice today. Thanks for having me. Great having you, Charles. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to our show. As always, we would love to hear your feedback. Tell us what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. 